This week has been a big week in the world of football. For last Tuesday was transfer deadline day. From the 1st of February onwards, no team is allowed to bring in any more new players. They must make it to the end of the season with the squads that they have got. This year saw a record amount of money spent on players, with the Premier League clubs forking out £2.8 billion between them. More than £275 million of that was spent on Tuesday alone. All the top teams have spent big in the attempt to win silverware come the end of the season. Many fans of Premier League teams get excited around this time of year. They love watching new talent come into their clubs. It gives them a feeling of hope and expectation for the future. However, many fans of lower league teams dread this time of year. They're trying to hang on to their best players for dear life, knowing that many will be snatched away, leaving them to struggle on to the end of the season without them. This happened to my team this year. Yes, Wickham Wanderers lost their best player to a team in a higher division. He was our top goal scorer, our most exciting talent. There is no doubt that we will be much weaker without him. I, for one, no longer think we'll make the playoffs as a result. And when this happens, lower league fans feel hugely disappointed. They feel betrayed. They feel let down. Their club has invested in training this young talent up. They've toured the country week after week, supporting them and spurring them on. And it feels like the player has just turned their back and wandered off. Their head turned by money. And it's because of this, many players who return to their old clubs while playing for their new side get booed by the fans who had previously sung their name. Of course, the situation is more complicated than that. And of course, this is very unfair on the particular players. They're just trying to further their career like every other one of us does. But what it boils down to is this. Fans are utterly committed to their club. They'll follow them all of their life. They'll never support another one. And what they really want is for their players to match their own commitment to the team. Now, I know that not everybody here likes football, and none of you care about the woes of my beloved Wiccan Wanderers. So I'd better explain why I've started in this way. I use this illustration because I think it speaks into the issue that is at the heart of this passage. The issue is commitment. God is utterly committed to us. So much so, he sent his son into the world to die in our place, to forgive us for our sin. And what he is looking for in response is some commitment from us back towards him. And I'm going to try and steadily lead us through this passage now and draw five points on this theme of commitment. The first point is simply this. Jesus is looking for commitment from his people. We find this in the very first verse, verse 22. Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. We don't often think about this, do we? We're used to hearing about Jesus' baptism, but here it tells us that after that, 
Jesus' disciples went on baptizing other people while Jesus was with them. The disciples were continuing the ministry of John the Baptist and clearly Jesus approved of this act. Why did people get baptised? Well, having heard the word of God, they wanted to confess their sin. They wanted to begin again. After a period of waywardness, they wanted to get back on track with God, put him back to the centre of their lives. They wanted to be ready for the exciting new things that God was about to do. They wanted to see God's kingdom come. And on confessing their sin and recommitting to the Lord, baptism was the symbol of those sins being washed away and God graciously granting them a new start. Now, as anybody who has ever seen a baptism take place or has gone through the waters themselves know, baptism is a very clear act of commitment. You cannot hide a baptism. You cannot do it quietly or subtly. Baptisms take place in public. They're dramatic and messy. You get drenched from head to toe. No one gets baptised in the Bible who did not really want to go through with it. In fact, many people in the early church completely lost all the family and friends that they had because they did. Baptism undoubtedly is the ultimate act of commitment to God. (coughs) I described my baptism to a couple this week as my wedding day to the Lord. That's how I think about it. I think that's how the Bible teaches it to be. Now, if Jesus was there... While all of this was taking place, he must have approved of it. Indeed, he must have wanted people to take this step and congratulated them when they did. Jesus taught that repentance from sin was necessary. Having a hunger for God is essential if we want to be part of his kingdom. Baptism states that we are God's people. We want to live for him. We want to serve him with our lives. We want to try and obey his commands. Verse 22 shows us that Jesus is looking for this real radical commitment from each one of us. So Jesus is looking for commitment. The second point to draw from this passage is that making that commitment is endangered by pride. As the passage goes on, we see a little bit of a conflict arise. This is verse 26. John's disciples came and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone's going to him. Jesus' disciples were clearly having great success. Many people were travelling to them to hear God's word and got baptised. And as a result, John's disciples feel threatened. In fact, as more and more people go over to Jesus, they start to feel more and more jealous. (coughs) Now, why was this? Well, remember, John was baptising people long before Jesus arrived on the scene. That was how he got his name, John the Baptist. And it was John who'd baptised Jesus himself. Maybe John's followers have begun to see Jesus as a a bit of a rebel, a bit of an upstart. He'd at one time been happy to be associated with John, but now he'd struck out on his own, 
set up his own movement. Now clearly that wasn't true. And clearly those ideas went against everything John had spent his time teaching his disciples. But clearly at some point or other, many of John's followers had completely missed the point. John had come to pave the way for Jesus, not the other way around. And it all begs the question then, well, what possibly could have led John's disciples to think in this way? Well, I think it's quite likely that it was pride. Simple, yet selfish, human pride. They joined John's group. And it was pride that led them want to see the status of that group and their rabbi rise above any other. They were obviously under the assumption that they joined a group that was going to grow and grow and grow. And because they were there at the beginning, they would have senior positions within the movement. They simply had no inkling at all that within a few chapters, John would be in prison. And soon after that, he would be dead. Whereas the ministry of Jesus will last for forevermore. This just wasn't on their radar. I really think that we see that it was pride that led John's disciples to come to some very misplaced priorities. It was pride that stopped them making the personal commitment to Jesus that they needed to. And still today, personal pride stops many people from bowing the knee to Jesus and following him with their lives. What about us today? Is our pride getting in the way of what God wants to do in us? So Jesus is looking for commitment and John's disciples show us that that commitment is endangered by human pride. The third point this passage raises is the exact opposite. Commitment depends upon humility. In all of human life, no matter what sphere it is in, be it marriage or parenting, business or friendship, we will never truly commit ourselves to another person unless we are humble in and of ourselves. On hearing the arguments that had arisen, John sets about demonstrating this humility. In verses 27 to 30, John diffuses the hostility of his followers with some very telling statements. Let's hear them again in full. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. In verse 27, John tells his followers that he's fully accepted his position in life. God set him apart as a forerunner to Jesus And he's been more than happy to play that part. In verse 28, John reiterates his fervent desire that all the attention and all the glory be taken off of himself and put onto Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the chosen one. He is not. Jesus is Lord. He's just a servant. 
John has never taught anything other than this to be the case. And in verse 29, John uses a beautiful illustration to make the point, just in case his wobbly disciples have still not got the message. John was not threatened by Jesus' success. Oh no, quite the opposite. John took great joy from it. Like a, a best man at a wedding. He took great pleasure from seeing his friend truly happy. He wasn't crushed because he couldn't jump in and marry the bride himself. No one chooses a jealous best man. That would be a recipe for disaster. The preserve only of EastEnders and those other farcical TV soaps. Verse 30, John wraps it up in a nutshell. Speaking of Jesus, he says, no, (coughs) he must become greater. I must become less. And that humble statement should be the guiding principle of every church, every minister, every Christian. He must become greater. I must become less. That is the heart of true commitment. Nothing will be achieved in the Christian walk without that attitude. The very wise C.S. Lewis once put it like this. We are to play great parts without pride and small parts without shame. We are to play great parts without pride and small parts without shame. John the Baptist modelled that perfectly. True commitment to Jesus depends on us being humble ourselves. We're not to look around and compare ourselves with others. We're simply just to get on with the task of following Jesus. Humility is the route to joy. So Jesus is looking for commitment. Human pride endangers that commitment. Whereas humility is what it depends on. The fourth point to draw from this passage is the most important of them all. As we think about offering our commitment, we're to realise that Jesus is truly worthy of it. And this is what verses 31 to 35 are all about. It's John, the gospel writer, supplying his own commentary on what's taken place with John the Baptist and his disciples. And John wants all his readers to know that they should be committed to Jesus because he's truly supreme over all. Let's see the reasons he gives for this. In verse 31, Jesus is shown to be supreme because contrary to any other human being, he comes from above. In other words, Jesus is God. He is the word made flesh. Everything Jesus did while he was on earth was a truly divine act. So he was supreme to John the Baptist. He is supreme to you and I. He is supreme to any other person, any other cause that tries to draw commitment from us. In verses 32 to 34, Jesus is shown to be supreme because he alone on earth speaks the very words of God. Contrary to all the other gurus and self-help guides out there in the world today, only the words of Jesus can be trusted to be totally true. 
Indeed, his teaching, as recorded in the scriptures, is to be made the bedrock of our lives. Also in verse 34, Jesus announces that Jesus is supreme because he is full of God's spirit. So full, in fact, he has the capacity to pass the spirit on to others. And what John is referring to here is the authority and the power at Jesus' disposal. No one else can still a storm. No one else can heal the sick. No one else can forgive sin. No one else can raise the dead. Yet Jesus did all of those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they show us plainly that he is worthy of our commitment. Far more worthy of it than the other things we commit ourselves to. And finally in verse 35 John tells us that Jesus is supreme because the Father has made him to be so. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Jesus right at this moment is sat on the throne of heaven and from there he reigns over all things. He is king of all everything sits within his hands all of time all of life and it's because of this that we know that despite how it appears on the news this world is in safe hands and it's only going to one place the fullness of the kingdom of god when jesus returns and brings his reign to earth Many people would say that they're committed to the monarch of their land. We saw that at the Queen's funeral. Jesus is worthy of an even greater level of commitment because he is supreme to all human rulers. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything into his hands. So this is John's key message. This is what he wants us to take away from this passage. Jesus is supreme. He is is fully God. He speaks the word of God. He acts in power. He reigns over all. Therefore, he is worthy of our commitment. He is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our service. Jesus is supreme. So he's worthy of our commitment. So in this passage, we've discovered that Jesus is looking for commitment. He sat there as people got baptized. Pride is the enemy of commitment. Humility is what it depends upon. And we are to know deep down that Jesus is worthy of commitment. There's one final point that John wants to make in this section. He wants us to know what the outcome of commitment to Jesus is. And here John doesn't beat around the bush. Verse 36 is very clear. Anyone can understand it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, 
But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Jesus promises salvation. He promises eternal life to anyone who believes in him. Anyone who takes that step of commitment towards him is rescued by his love. Whereas those who reject Jesus, those who refuse to commit to him, will experience the wrath of God. That's not because God is a tyrant or a bully but because evil and sin has consequences. God's not endlessly passive about the presence of evil in the world. He's not going to let it go on forever because God loves his creation. He loves it so much and he's promised to set it free from all that damages it. And he's made it clear that his judgment will fall on all that works against his good purposes and causes destruction within his world. It goes without saying then that while we have the opportunity, we should do all that we can to urge people to respond to God's great love for us in Jesus. To commit to following him before it's too late. The good news is that eternal life is the outcome for those who believe, for those who commit. But God's wrath is real. And it's coming to those who refuse. So there our passage ends. It's been an extended reflection on commitment. God's commitment to us in sending Jesus our saviour. And the commitment he looks for in response. Perhaps the best way for us to finish is by asking a few simple questions of ourselves. Are we committed to Jesus I mean truly committed to him if not what's holding us back do we need to humble our pride in certain areas of our life so we can do what God wants us to do is it a question of not recognizing who Jesus really is can we allow him to be supreme over our lives once more and can we set about demonstrating that commitment by telling as many people as possible about Jesus in much the same way as John the Baptist did? Remember the truth of that final verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Let us pray. With that in mind.